Uh, good to see those of you, well, see those of you. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We are uh, thrilled that you are with us, and we long for the day when we can see one another face-to-face again, uh, but we're so glad that uh, we can be here together. Well, every morning, uh, on my way to drop my kids off at school in Costa Mesa, I would come by this mural. Uh, as we were getting ready to go into the playground. And college basketball fans, you may recognize this as the pyramid of success made famous by UCLA's John Wooden. And uh, I just have to mention this. uh, On Thursday, Tara Berry uh, called me up and asked me what I was uh, thinking about, what I was doing. And I said, "I'm, I'm actually thinking about John Wooden. And she said, oh, who's that? So I told her, who he was, and she said, oh, he's kind of like the Nick Saban of California. And I was like, oh, Tara, no. The record does not lie. Ten national championships in 12 years, including seven straight. Nobody else has even come close. Four undefeated seasons, 88 straight wins between the years 1971 and 1973. And yet, if you were to ask John Wooden how many of those championships he won, he would say, I didn't win any of them. I taught my students And they were the ones who were responsible for each of those banners. Legend. His teaching methods were a bit out of the box. Uh, Perfect example, the first day of the brand new year, uh, all these new recruits would be kind of, you know, gathered in anticipation, wondering what was the secret sauce for the Wizard of Westwood? What are we going to do? Are we going to learn offensive drills? Are we going to run a three-man weave? Are we going to, you know, practice uh, the triangle offense? What's it going to be? And he would just come in looking like some combination of, you know, Buddy Holly, Ted Lasso and Mr. Rogers all together, and he would say, lesson one, take off your shoes and your socks. I'm going to show you the proper way to put them on. Pull up your socks. You need to make sure that the laces are on tight. You need to make sure that there is no room in the shoe for the sock to bunch up and get in there to to cause some rubbing. And This would go on for 30 minutes. He would teach them how to put on their socks, grown men, and tie their shoes. Grown men who were the likes of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton, future Hall of Famers, some of the best basketball players in the country all flocked to John Wooden's program. And at that point where they would be kind of looking around at each other like, wait, serious, like this is what we're going to do. Wooden would get up, he'd walk to the door, and he'd hear the kind of murmuring come about. And just when things kind of got to that point where the the guys were like, wait, he can't be serious, he would turn around and say, lesson one, sometimes it is the simplest things that can trip you up. Neglecting the small things can cause you all kinds of problems down the road. If there are wrinkles in your socks or if your shoes come untied, you might get blisters or you might sprain an ankle. If you get blisters or you sprain an ankle, you might miss out on practice. If you miss out on practice, you cannot play in a game. If you don't play in a game, we cannot win. If we don't win, we won't get to the tournament. We can't win a championship. Everything we do here 
matters. First day of practice over. And the reason that Wooden was so effective is not simply because he had great players, but because he instilled in them this idea that from the, the very beginning that no one person was more important than the team as a whole. He, he instilled this idea of humble confidence from day one. It did not matter how good you were, you had something to learn. It didn't matter how, how great your gifts were, you still had some deficiencies. You still needed other people to use their gifts to kind of bring it all together. And he, he drove in them this idea that you can accomplish anything as long as you do not care who gets the credit for it and if you use your gifts to make the team better and if you are humble enough to make uh, to, to allow other people to use their gifts to make you better well 10 championships in 12 years we are continuing to look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and as we move into chapter 4, we're kind of coming into this, this kind of boundary marker in the text. And most of the letters in the New Testament have this kind of pattern, particularly the ones that Paul wrote, where the, the first part, he, he turns from talking about the story of Jesus and what Jesus did and how we are supposed to live in light of that. Paul was connected to this community of Ephesus, these, these Christians. He, he planted the church there. He was responsible for many of them coming to faith. He had a personal stake in their embodying this and in learning what it is to follow Jesus. And so he spends these first three chapters in this letter talking about Jesus, talking about what he has done, unpacking the power of the resurrection, the significance of his life, his death, and that through those things, through his resurrection, he is calling this church into being, into living out this resurrected life through the Spirit. How he is calling together this new multi-ethnic family, people who have placed their faith in him, whose identity is rooted in him. That's all what chapters 1 through 3 are about. And then in chapter 4, he turns to, so how do we make this happen? How do we actually live out the fundamentals of the Christian life? In a way, Paul is teaching them how to put on their socks and how to tie their shoelaces so I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to emphasize verses 1 through 6 as we come together this morning. And friends, listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, we would hear what it is that you would have us here this morning, and so that we may become those who are growing in unity and in maturity in the fullness of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Jill and I met uh, working at a summer camp in the summer of 2002. I told you a couple weeks ago about our epic first date that she did not know was a date. Um, And we had this experience, and, I, and we often look back to it as being very formative for us, that there were you know, 70 or 80 of us, uh, you know, 19 to 25-year-olds, all coming together, working on this summer staff just outside of Yosemite National Park. Uh, it was the first time either of us really had a taste of what Christian community was like. And we would spend the entire summer, you know, in prayer and in worship, hiking trails, making meals, making campfires, uh, teaching lessons. We would be talking about Jesus, what he was up to in the world. And we would get to these end of these 16-hour days where we would just kind of collapse in a heap in our, in our bunk. The pay was awful. But the joy... The, the sense of solidarity, the eagerness to, you know, hold up a common vision, a common mission. Well, over those months, you know, marriages were started, vocations were discerned, lives were changed. And we all started that summer knowing that at the end of it, we were going to have to leave. But we also knew that we were going to do whatever it took over those months to carry out the mission that we were going to lean on each other and on the gifts that each other had and trust that the gifts that we had and brought to the table were going to be used to make the whole thing work. Our community group, whenever it is that we gather and we talk about uh, community and we dream about what community looks like, you know, those of us who have had a similar background from that, we, we, we kind of you know, have that on the, the backdrop of our minds when, whenever we talk about community. But it's one thing to dream about community. Another thing altogether to partner with the Spirit in taking on the disciplines and the practices to make that community work and hold together. We were created for community. It's this longing that emerges from the soul because we were made in the image of the triune God who lives in perfect communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfect communion is a tall order, though, even for the community that is supposed to look like Jesus. Paul starts out the fourth chapter with this word, 
therefore or then in the NIV. And you don't need to spend a day in seminary to know that when he says therefore or when he says in light of that or then, he is referring to all of the teaching that had come up until that point. He's talking about what he, he is basing what he is teaching on what he has already stated in these first three chapters. And in those chapters, he describes the community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this perfect and inseparable fellowship of love into which we have been adopted. Every good thing that happens in our souls comes from our participation in the life of the Trinity. It's the home that we can never leave. It's, it's the place that tells us who we are and what we are about. And so this, this home with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, well, it offers us the love that we can't live without. The place where we are offered forgiveness of sin and are pointed toward a hopeful future. It is the, the mission ground that gives us a glimpse of the beauty that God is up to in the world. It's the place that fuels our desire and fires up our imagination for what God is going to accomplish in the world. And all of that comes from our participation in the life of the Trinity itself. And so in these first three chapters, Paul explains how the, the triune fellowship chooses us, adopts us, lavishes grace upon us, makes us fully alive, and draws us into community. And then in chapter four, Paul says, therefore, in light of all that, take care of this community. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So why do you think it is that he tells us to be gentle with it? Well, I think that's because he knows that this thing called community is pretty fragile. We care for this community not just because it has intrinsic value in itself, but because it is the staging ground of God's redemption. The church community is the place where we get a sign and a foretaste of what God wants all of redeemed humanity to look like. It's the community from which we have the touch point, the experience of God's grace. And we cannot experience God's grace without each other. We need each other for that. We cannot experience the fullness of Christ without the gifts and the graces that each of us bring to the table. But the church does not always appear so gracious, right? Any of you ever been part of a church that's falling apart? There was a time uh, at a church that I was serving uh, a while back um, where for about five months, everybody just went crazy. Uh, the senior leadership had made the decision to uh, ask a beloved staff member to move on, and initially this person agreed to do so and then changed his mind. Uh, and so our lead pastor had, had decided to, to move on a couple months prior to that. And in, in the leadership vacuum, the, the pastor emeritus who had guided the church for 31 years decided he was going to step into the problem. And then along with 80 other people, they stormed into a session meeting and demanded that the session reverse course. Guess who had to field that one? Shortly thereafter, a couple of deacons hijacked the church's uh, 
database and emailed everybody in the church, all you know, 3,000 something members and said how the leadership structure was entirely corrupt and could not be trusted. Guess who had to call those deacons? I was up on the, on the phone once until two o'clock in the morning because one of these disaffected members was spreading rumors that a, a member of our senior leadership team was having an affair, which was absolutely not true. Things had just gotten crazy, guys. <laughs> and I, I say that not, not without an ounce of bitterness. I mean, these are people that I loved dearly. I stayed at that church for another three years. Eventually, you know, about 100 people left, but we kind of got back into some level of, of normalcy together. But it's amazing how things that are decidedly not theological can drive a community apart from one another. And so it is that, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll meet somebody, um, you know, like, like recently out at a neighborhood gathering, some new folks moved into our neighborhood. We were getting to know each other in the, the front Yard and the inevitable awkward conversation moment comes when they ask, what do you do for a living? And I know this is going to go like one of three ways. Uh, but this particular way, it went this way. They're like, oh. And then, you know, a little bit of a pause and they're like, yeah, I'm just not into organized religion. And I'm thinking in my head, clearly you'd prefer disorganized religion. Like... But I just smiled, and then, you know, the person went on to elaborate on the moralism, on the hypocrisy, on the judgment, and, and all that stuff. And then I'm just like, bro, hold my beer. I've got some stories for you. But then it's like, well, so, so why do you do it? Why are you part of it? I'm like, well, the same reason I go to the hospital when I'm sick. It's the only place I know to find healing. The church is not a place where everyone has it all together. Just like hospitals are not a model of health. We come to the church not because we are doing well, but we come to find healing in those places. Here's Paul's point. Healing does not just come from participating in worship in the sacraments, but by participating in our life together. It's, it's in this, this place where we are with others who are real and open and honest about their need for Jesus and what Jesus is doing in their lives that we catch a glimpse of the possibility that there is hope and healing available to us. So Paul says, lead a, a life worthy of the calling which you have been called. And th- now when we hear that word calling, I think so often we immediately jump in our minds to you know, job descriptions or, or things like that. But Paul is talking primarily about this call to Christ. And with that is this call to be in community. Why are those two things held together? Because of the therefore, because we cannot experience or participate in God's redemption apart from being in community with each other. And I imagine Paul had a way longer list of the problems that church communities can can get into. But he knows that this is how God has chosen to give himself to us. And we all have like ideas and dreams uh, of community. We all have ways that we can think of of how to improve on the community. 
Even in those places where you feel like everything's kind of going well, when it feels like everything is in step, where it feels like you know, people might spontaneously start you know, dancing and singing all, all along the same line because everything is going the way it's supposed to. Even in those places, there, there's room for improvement. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this wonderful book called Life Together, which is an absolute classic about Christian community. And it came from his reflections on what he was learning uh, about Christian community from this experience he had of leading an underground seminary during World War II Germany. Bonhoeffer was part of the resistance against national socialism. And, and this experience of leading this community was somewhat of like a monastic experience for him. But he learned there that nothing is more dangerous to authentic community than our dreams of it. He wrote this. On innumerable occasions, a whole Christian community has been shattered because it has lived on the basis of a wishful image. Every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so earnest, honest, and sacrificial. It's possible to love our dreams of community more than the community that is actually right in front of us. And I think what this means is that we need to spend less time trying to find a community that's going to meet our needs and more time receiving the community that God has given to us into which we can pour out our gifts to, to build it up. A community that suits our needs is one that we're never going to need to practice being humble and gentle or being patient or, or bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And I got to tell you, 17 years as a pastor, some of the most damaging people that I have come across in church are the ones who mistake being around the church for a long time with having a mature faith. Because sometimes people who've been around for a long time never do learn how to love the people who are right in front of them. Because they only have in mind the kind of community that they think that we should be and the kind of people they think those people should be. And so they often try to remake the church in their own image and leave with bitterness if the church doesn't live up to their ideals. But what if we saw the church as a gymnasium where we get to practice this art of being in fellowship, being in community with one another? Again, that's how God gave himself to us in, in the person that we find difficult to love. And I think that's so important in, in this particular cultural moment that we're in because you're just going to wear yourself out if you are constantly chasing the illusion that you will be more yourself if you can come into a group of people with whom it is easier for you to get along. If you came into a community of different people who had different problems than the ones that you are currently with, or if you came into a, a community of people who were more in line with your narrow sense of what the world should be like. Instead, Paul says, we live into this high holy calling of being in community by going back to the very basics. Through humility, 
gentleness, patience, forbearance. These are not four virtues you immediately rush to. I mean, when, when parents have a new child, they don't look at the child and say, oh, I hope he grows up to be humble. They're not exactly in vogue in this moment. But without these things, I mean, things will go south real fast. Putting on these virtues is like learning how to smooth out your socks and tie your shoelaces. A lot of the things that tend to tear communities apart are, as I said, not necessarily theological. So if you think that everyone who had any sense would think the way that you do, you're going to need to learn humility if you want to be in community. If you find that you just want to shout down everyone and insist on your own way without finding out what the needs of other people are, you're going to need to learn gentleness if you want to be in community. If you are just tired of waiting for everyone to get with the program, you're going to need to learn patience if you want to live in community. And if you find that at the end of all of it, that people just did not live up to your expectations, you're going to need to practice forgiveness if you want to be in community. Most of these dilemmas that Paul deals with in all these churches that he's writing to are, are, are not so much about doctrine. I mean, there are some for sure, and those things are important. But they're much more about how we need to learn how to order our hearts toward loving others, doing what it takes for them to flourish, even if it is a little bit inconvenient. Unity, as it turns out, is not the same thing as uniformity. But unity, it comes from pursuing Christ together. It comes from using those gifts and those graces to lift each other up and from receiving the gifts and graces that others have. I love how the Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel put it when he said that when two people come together, a creative space is found between them. And without those two people coming together, there is no creative space for God to dwell Basil of Caesarea claimed that the Holy Spirit is the space created by the church gathered in community and Jesus himself said, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. They're all saying the same thing, that when we gather, God gathers with us. That's why we gather. And not only in worship or in community groups, but when we gather in, in band practice, when we gather in, in staff meetings, when we gather in service projects, when we gather together on a softball field and get absolutely demolished by the brick store pub. I'm not saying that that happened recently. But in the gathering, God's presence is made known. When Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he's not going on this elaborate kind of exhaustive list. He's just illustrating how in those creative spaces, Jesus shows up in community. And who knows what can happen when the Savior is present? 
So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day whether you know the people well that you are gathering with. It doesn't matter really if they're even your kind of people. It doesn't matter if you liked the music this morning or if you liked the sermon. What matters is that in the gathering, that you are gathering into the presence of the community with the triune God. That's how unity happens. It's not uniformity of experience, but unity in Christ and who he is. John Wooden was once asked near the end of his life what he missed most about his career. And he said, when, when people ask me now if I missed coaching UCLA basketball, the national championships, the attention, the trophies, and everything that goes with them, I tell them this. I miss the practices Community is the tumbling ground where we practice the redemption that God is up to. It's where we experience the the reality that our souls are yearning for. And the good news is you do not have to try to find it for yourself. God has already found you in a community of real people. In the community that you already have. Amen. Now, friends, as we come to the table, we come gathered and unified around the experience of this meal and the story of Christ's death and redemption for the forgiveness of sins, for the flourishing of the world. And so as we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he'd given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat all of you and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the cup of the new covenant. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. And so, friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. As we come, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, these gifts are for you. Take and eat and drink. Remember and rejoice. Amen.